Hi everybody, it's James Rudd with the Heart Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Today I have a discussion with Dr. Thomas Butler. Tom is a dietitian and dietary researcher, and he's published a review along with several other co-authors, which is called The Optimum Nutritional Strategies for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and Rehabilitation. And we have a discussion about controversial areas of dietary advice that we give to patients with cardiovascular disease and post-MI, and also some areas of consensus and agreement, and some bullet points that everybody can take from his article. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Maybe we can start, Tom, by you introducing yourself for the heart audience, telling people who you are, what you do, and where you work. Okay, so um, my name is Tom Butler. I'm a senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Chester. Um, my background is in sort of cardiovascular health, and I did my PhD quite a long time ago now, um, 2012, looking at the role of diet, in particular um, fats and sugars on the hypertrophied heart, uh, using a nice little model of um, sort of aortic constriction. And that's kind of where I became really interested in how um, diet and the foods that we actually affect organs themselves. We all think about how diet can affect things like lipids and glucose, but I really got interested in the direct effects on the myocardium itself and then sort of went down the, the dietetics route and um, became relatively recently involved with the BACPR, um, looking at developing and in many ways leading the uh, diet working group, which reflects the publication that we'll talk about today in terms of trying to make some headway in the massive um, void, <laughs> load of information regarding cardiovascular health and nutrition. And just for those who aren't familiar, Tom, can you tell us what the BACPR stands for? Yes, yeah, so BACPS stands for the British Association for Cardiovascular Prevention and Rehabilitation. And in many ways, it is the sort of the flagship cardiac rehab professional group um, in the UK. It's got a, a big membership of circa around about 1,000 members uh, comprising dietitians, exercise physiologists, cardiologists, nurses, um, everybody really. Uh, and in many ways reflects the sort of the demographic of the cardiac rehab um, healthcare professional group. With obviously my background within dietetics, we're trying to kind of build more of that into the actual group because as we'll talk about today, the importance of lifestyle rehabilitation and in many ways nutritional rehabilitation, I think is really important to to address, um, especially now more than ever, when we look at some of the quite worrying statistics in terms of BMI and, and things like that when it comes to um, cardiac rehab patients. Well, let's get into it um, without mm. any further ado, Tom. So you've written a a wonderful review article in Heart, which is called The Optimum Nutritional Strategies for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and Rehabilitation. As you say, this is written as part of the working group uh, within the BACPR. Can you maybe start off by giving us some background to the article? What made you think that this was something important that uh, you guys published? Well, this this kind of all came <laughs> since like it happened only yesterday but actually it's been kind of a good few years in the making with this because um i think it was um a couple of years ago at one of the conferences uh, the annual bacpr conference up in glasgow um there's a lot of talk around uh, comorbidities and even at the conferences bacpr has had before that date there's been sort of 
uh, little kind of tidbits of conversation around addressing diet and some of the controversies around low saturated fats and low carbs. Um, but actually, one of the previous presidents, Dr. Scott Murray, was very keen to sort of um, address some of the challenges that um, are quite obvious in cardiac rehab. And one of those being the issues around um, BM BMI, hypertension and as we know, the, the prevalence of diabetes as well. So it kind of came from discussions with Scott, as well as colleagues who I know from sort of dietetic circles about why is there, um, you, you can't get more, you can't get a topic that affects more people, I think, than cardiovascular health. And in many ways, the BACPR had been a little bit quiet on, on this um, up until this point very good at putting out exercise um, information and there were a couple of training modules that the BACPR run on sort of dietary changes, BMI, Mediterranean diet, but they didn't necessarily have a position statement as an organization. And that's where I think we kind of felt we should be doing something to kind of lead the way on this and try and shed a little bit of light on what we um, think are the most appropriate strategies for cardiovascular health from a nutritional point of view. And then it's obviously spiraled from there a little bit. The working group um, continues to grow. And I think one of the things we've been talking about recently is um, bringing in some more information about nutrition in heart failure as well. Um, there's myself and one of my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Connor Keely, has also written a, a couple of review papers about this. And mm. it's something which doesn't really get any look in whatsoever, especially if you look in um, NICE guidelines for grinding heart failure. It's, there's, there's nothing there from a nutrition point of view. And we obviously as dietitians feel that there's a, a, you know, a growing number of people who are living with heart failure. There needs to be something a little bit better mm. than what we currently have. So, yeah, the group is going to be around for ages. And it's, it stemmed from the, lack, the fact that there seems to be very little or seem to be very little um, specific nutritional advice um, from a sort of a cardiac rehab point of view. And that's something we wanted to address. And I know in the article you mentioned the difficulties doing nutritional uh, trials and nutritional research. Mm. So I'm assuming that most of the recommendations that you outline in, in Table 4, uh, a sort of summary recommendations part of the paper, was this a, a kind of meta-analysis systematic review or were you, were you going by best practice that you'd garnered from other groups worldwide? How did you end up synthesizing um, all this massive data into the summary <laughs> recommendations in Table 4? That's a little, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's a little bit of everything. And one of the things we included, obviously, was um, uh, looking at available data from meta-analyses, but also being mindful of um, some of the short-term RCTs that have also taken place um, in the field of nutrition. Mm. As you mentioned, James, one of the big issues is, and we touched on this in the paper, is actually doing um, randomized controlled trials or you know long-term randomized controlled trials, which many view as the gold standard in terms of creating evidence. This is actually really difficult to obviously do um, from a nutritional side of things. And even the ESC in their latest um, dyslipidemia guidelines kind of state that nutritional and lifestyle recommendations should be based on a combination of observational evidence, um, but also short-term RCTs as well, looking at intermediate risk factors. So if you go through the paper, you'll see a sort of a mix of um, prospective uh, cohort studies, meta-analyses such as those from the Cochrane um, 
and also some individual RCTs, which perhaps make us think about some of the beliefs we've had. So the some reason table four, like you say, go come back to um, sort of professional opinion from uh, dietitians in practice and also those in academia too, but also the available evidence base um, that currently exists in the literature, including meta-analyses, prospective cohorts, and some small RCTs, especially looking at risk factors too. And just to maybe um, cut to the chase, as it were, in, in yeah. that summary table for you, you kind of come down saying that you think some version of the so-called Mediterranean diet is appropriate for you know most people with lots and mm. lots of caveats in terms of you know using high quality protein and adjusting the diet recommendations uh, where required depending on comorbidities of patients. Mm. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit and then perhaps we'll hit some of the controversial areas you talked about, saturated <laughs> fats, yeah, that's, yeah, you talked so about eggs, you that. talked about alcohol, that kind of thing. But the yes. Mediterranean diet as the center of what you think is, is reasonable, can you comment about that? Well, I mean, I think... Or am I misrepresenting you? You? <laughs> you? you tell me what you no. think. No, no, not at all. Um, there's been... There's one paper that we came across that was actually quite interesting. It said there'd been more systematic reviews and meta-analyses on the Mediterranean diet than they had actual studies on it, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> um, and and there's a lot of misinformation about the Mediterranean diet. And I know from speaking to some of the sort of phase four people who I kind of work with in Warrington and see um, and other people around, it's it's not pasta and pizza <laughs> like a lot of patients might suggest, there's actually this uh, pending where you're on the Mediterranean that varies. But whichever way you look at the evidence, there still seems to be this beneficial effect of this particular Mediterranean or cardioprotective style diet. And that's what Myers refer to as this kind of cardioprotective diet. The problem is, however, is that this particular approach, it needs to be tweaked because not everybody who is presenting in cardiac rehab is simply there just because of a, a simple MI. There's lots of other underlying factors. And as we know, diabetes or, you know, frank diabetes, but also dysglycemia is also very prevalent in this group. And there's some arguments that suggest that perhaps we should be taking this idea of a Mediterranean style or cardioprotective diet and modifying the components to reflect the comorbidities that this patient population has. And I think that's where, from a group, we have tried to make some inroads because NICE guidelines in this particular area are very kind of almost very prescriptive in terms of a dietary approach, and that is the sort of Mediterranean cardioprotective diet. Mm. But one of the things that we've taken inspiration from um, was some of the documents put out by Diabetes UK um, a couple of years ago, which was suggesting that there's quite a few options to manage diabetes, um, one of those being low carb. And equally, we as a group felt that, you know, what given the demographic, there should be a few ways of managing cardiovascular health. And as long as you kind of hold true to that classic cardioprotective diet with um plenty of fiber and plenty of unsaturated fats the other parts of it the carbohydrate amounts the types that should be modified based on the person you're working with and and that's sort of where we kind of gone with this is almost like a skeleton of this cardioprotective diet the traditional mediterranean diet which you then add certain things in based on the people who you're working with okay and you mentioned there 
the so-called low carbohydrate diets mm. so what kind of patient would you think or, or person entering cardiac rehab who let's say had a a moderate sized mi but has recovered well who do you think you would normally target a, a low carb uh, version of the mediterranean diet to i think there, there's classically been quite a lot of um, especially with low carb research has really focused on those with um altered blood glucose so you're looking at those individuals with um diabetes mm. uh, and likely poorly controlled diabetes as well um this is also kind of consistent with um what esc comment on as well in terms of reducing sort of triglyceride rich lipoproteins so this would be um you know vldl for example which you would expect to be elevated in those with diabetes anyway because of insulin resistance one of their recommendations is actually just to reduce um the amount of overall carbohydrate but especially refined carbs as well and this isn't something which you automatically see just by looking at you know the mediterranean style diet so we have to kind of dig a little deeper but for those with um dysglycemia we've mentioned about um re possibly reducing portion size carbohydrates uh, in general and looking at um free sugar content in the diet as well um a lot of people don't know what free sugar is but a lot of patients are very familiar with the phrase added sugar mm. but that um, recommendation to kind of get rid of the phrase added sugar and replace with free sugar was put forward by Sacken in 2015 um, and we've been quite clear to mention free sugar in table four because that includes not only um, the sugar that you add to food but it's also the food the sugar which is naturally present in there as well such as things like orange juice for example honeys syrups the things you might think you're being really help healthy by having a load of honey on your breakfast cereal in the morning or your porridge now counts as free sugar. Yeah, I see. So it's it's a confusing um, element for patients, but certainly going back to your question, for those who have um, alterations in their blood glucose, and I think certainly low carbohydrate, but a very um, healthy, well-structured um, and clearly defined low carb diet is, is definitely something to try with patients. And reading the review again yesterday, I noticed that there's no clear recommendation that people should uh, become vegetarian or vegan. We see a lot about this in the popular press. Mm. So you you, still, you you think you're happy to um, support limited amounts of red meat, particularly of good uh, quality sources. You make a, a big uh, deal about that in the paper. The source of protein seems to be as important uh, as the amount yes. of protein you're and eating. And I think this, you know, there's, a, there's a big rise in um, people's interest in plant-based diets mm. and it's something that i've seen from kind of two perspectives so on the one hand you have people looking at plant-based diets from a, a health perspective an, ind an individual's health perspective but we also have this wrapped up in sustainability as well yeah and it's it's very trendy at the moment um plant-based diets vegan diets as, as you'll know but there are some I have personally some concerns around what this can potentially mean um, for individuals' health. Perhaps not younger individuals who have, you know, uh, a healthy appetite, but actually as we get older, requirements start to change, appetites start to diminish, and in many ways the quality of what we eat, I would argue, kind of matters a little bit more as we get older, which is why we focused on the, sort of the quality of protein.
Yeah. We do know as well that in the vegan diets, um, people who do follow a vegan diet will need to supplement, especially with things like B12. And we've made the comment about good quality animal and plant protein to make sure that people get enough of the essential amino acids, which we know that if you just simply follow um, vegan diets, it's a little bit more difficult to get all those essential amino acids. You have to really think quite carefully about what you eat. And, and that could actually tie into then terms of um, muscle growth, muscle function, which obviously from an exercise point of view, going through cardiac rehab, that would be a big thing to consider. Mm. Um, so yeah, so considerations around older people who might have a slightly higher need for protein, it's about the quality, it's about you know choosing lower fat types, leaner types of protein. Um, and if people do want to try and plant-based protein, it's about building variety and to make sure they're getting enough of those amino acids from those plant-based sources. So we've talked about areas of consensus, such as the, mm-hmm. the Mediterranean type diet as a, as a sort of backbone of where we might start for a mm. diet that is aimed to reduce future cardiovascular events. Where are the areas uh, that people still don't agree, uh, uh, Tom, uh, sort of controversial <laughs> areas that uh, start a fistfight at dietetic uh, <laughs> dietary conferences? Uh, the Well, protein, protein very much um, is one. And that mainly hinged on some of the considerations, sorry, some of the um, early work that was looking at protein intake in renal function. And this has been something which has lingered around in the sort of nutrition field for ages, along with the idea of the sort of what's called the acid-ash hypothesis, which is if you consume more, you know, I'm in inverted commas, acidifying foods, that leads your blood pH to kind of become more acidic. That causes leaching from calcium from the bones and, you know, you simply just turn into sort of a a big slushy puddle, Mm. which is just ridiculous. Um, But there there still seems to be this fear around looking at protein from a renal function point of view. And you can't can't get away from that. It is controversial. Um, And there is a lot more evidence for those patients who have compromised renal function. But I still hear argument saying well you can't have too much protein because it'll be really bad for your kidneys the evidence doesn't support that so that's a little bit uh, controversial but you can't really go wrong in terms of controversy with cardiovascular health when uh, other than saturated fat um, (laughs) which is fantastic because people talk about saturated fat as if it is a single entity but actually there are many different types of saturated fats um, in terms of sort of carbon chain length all have varying effects on cholesterol levels as well. But equally, the, the source of saturated fat really seems to matter as well. And this is where in our table four, we've been very careful to try and make um, some sort of food-based recommendations rather than saying you should have less saturated fat. We're trying to sort of look at actually encouraging people to have more of certain types of foods. And this is certainly something which I think is really important for practice. Um, When I teach cardiovascular nutrition at Chester Uni, I make sure that all of the students in the program go away with this, the kind of the key bit of information, which is you never make sort of nutrient-based recommendations for a patient or a client. You always have to give them food-based advice. And that's where we've tried to go with this article. So saturated fat, yes, controversial. We know if you increase your saturated fat intake, it will raise cholesterol levels, it will raise LDL, um, but in some people, it will also raise HDL. So there's an argument that, well, the amount of LDL to HDL, that hasn't changed, so is there a problem? Um, 
But from a cardiovascular risk perspective, especially post-MI, we know that actually bringing that LDL level down is actually useful. Um, bringing down the overall saturated fat content of the diet, yes, that's helpful. But we don't have to worry so much if we're looking at perhaps um, saturated fat coming from dairy, for example, which seems to be consistently associated with um, beneficial cardiovascular outcomes. And this seems to be one of these really interesting and sort of ongoing areas is that it's not necessarily the nutrient per se, but it's where it comes from mm. that seems to be causing the controversy. And I think this is something which is going to be very much ongoing in the future, looking at where nutrients come from. Uh, no, absolutely. I think it's it's um, a really uh, well-written uh, review article and certainly the table for the idea of talking to patients about foods they can and can't eat rather than you know, levels of macro and micronutrients. Mm. Uh, to me, as a non-expert, you know, intrinsically, intrinsically made sense. Um, what about alcohol? Uh, how much? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Should alcohol should patients is... um, just post MI should stick to the let's say the UK government guidelines of fourteen units per week as a maximum? Um, I mean, this is this is sort of where you could be accused of um, cherry picking because you could argue that uh, on the one hand you're happy to look at say your we are happy to look at. Um, studies that have been prospective or meta-analysis in terms of design and make recommendations from that but also when we look at some of the studies regarding alcohol similar type of study design but show adverse outcomes and I think for, for me again um, there isn't necessarily I don't think a safe amount of alcohol really that can be consumed we know that it has quite potent effects on blood pressure um, we know there's the calorie value as well, which people often underestimate. Mm. And I think our recommendations have been very much to kind of follow the current UK guidelines. But equally, you can have a little rummage on the internet and see some um, papers that show alcohol will raise HDL. We are not advocating people who currently uh, abstain from drinking alcohol to now start drinking alcohol. It's about if you do consume alcohol, then we're looking at falling in line with the government advice, um, avoiding binge drinking, which is a big problem, uh, probably more so with students <laughs> than, than I'd argue with um, most yeah. of my patients, um, and at least having a couple of days a week that are alcohol-free. We know that patterns of drinking as almost kind of matter more than amounts of drinking as well when it comes to the effect of alcohol on health, especially from cardiovascular health. And just to wrap up, Tom, are you aware of any ongoing trials in this area, be they randomized or not, that you think might inform practice, say, in the next five to ten years? There's a few trials that are coming out um, looking at sort of specifics around olive oil. And so, that again, this is something which is all kind of very interesting. Um, and what I did have a little look at um, earlier on today, there's some nice trials um, listed on clinicaltrials.gov which have been looking um, sort of at telehealth mm. um, I'll try and find some of these links to these but I think given what's going on with COVID at the moment there's going to be a big surge of research looking at the impact of uh, home-based exercises on cardiac rehabilitation and outcomes um, there's always going to be studies in terms of meta-analyses prospective cohorts and RCTs um, looking at nutritional aspects you know, eggs is a really good example of this. There'll be something, I predict in a few weeks' time, there'll be something on eggs. Um, 
will come out that no doubt says eggs are great or eggs are bad. So <laughs> there's not, not something specific. It's kind of an ongoing um, area with this, I think. Yeah, it's something that, as you say, probably needs to be refreshed every few years. But I mean, I think as a document, it, it does, it stands up really well in for practitioners and also mm-hmm. patients and, and people delivering this kind of healthcare. Mm. I think some of the, some of the interesting things, um, going back to sort of ongoing trials, mm. um, we refer to in the paper, we talk about some of the early work from uh, Verta Health, which was very interesting from the sort of the low carb point of view. And this was, I will spe- say specifically to those individuals with type 2 diabetes, not post my patients per se. But nonetheless, it was a very interesting study because it did show improvements in um, cardiometabolic risk, specifically small, dense LDL, um, HSCRP, and obviously HbA1c as well. Uh, and actually, their kind of um, platform and the evidence that is coming out from Verta Health is actually quite interesting. And it's kind of ongoing as they continue to grow uh, more and more patient, uh, put more and more patients into this um, long-term trial. So I think that will be quite interesting to follow, especially for those people who are sort of interested in the, the low-carb aspect of things. Yeah. Um, but there's always going to be work on Mediterranean diets. There's obviously uh, a couple of years ago, Results from PrediMed were republished after some controversy around the methods, um, and that database of patients will continue to churn out information specific to stroke, CVD, and MI as well. So there's a lot of big um, cohorts that will continue to kind of generate evidence in this field. The big problem that we have is synthesizing it all together. Yeah. And accounting for differences in populations, accounting for um, differences in terms of, you know, ethnicity, BMI, all these factors and even country of study, which is something that's really important to consider regarding the pure study, which sort of challenged the central dogma to uh, on cardiovascular health, which was, you know, cut back on saturated fat and have more carbs when pure suggested that having more carbs was bad for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. A lot, as with many nutrition studies, um, for sort of anybody reading this who wasn't too listened to this, who wasn't too familiar, the, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the really interesting stuff regarding nutrition studies is actually in the supplementary information. And the Pure study um, is a really good example of that. Where if you look at the supplementary information, you can really find and see what their participants in that particular study were eating. And in that situation, it really makes you question some of the results because a lot of people were consuming, and from a carbohydrate point of view, um, white bread, cereal, white rice as the main sources of carbohydrate, which everybody knows would not be the most appropriate or cardioprotective sources of carbohydrate to have. So that that little detail makes a huge difference when it comes to interpreting the results. And that's why we're going to continue to see these big cohort studies like Pure, like Attica and things like that in the future, which will continue to challenge what we understand about nutrition and cardiovascular health. Well, brilliant, Tom. Thank you so much for for joining us today and imparting some of your wisdom. I think most of the audience will be nowhere near as experienced as you are with this area. Um, And so many thanks uh, for joining me and many thanks for your time. Thank you.